Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbury. Today I'm in Highgate to meet Dr. Jack Kreindler, a physician, physiologist, researcher, and self-confessed serial health tech entrepreneur. Alongside his career as a doctor in emergency and high altitude medicine, for 25 years, Jack has founded and advised on pioneering physiological and mental health ventures, focusing on transforming what patients are capable of. For 15 years, he was the doctor behind the scenes on the extreme comic relief and sport relief challenges, including David Walliams' Swim Up the Thames, Davina McCall's Beyond Breaking Point fundraiser, and Robbie Savage and Alan Shearer's Battle of the Backsides. Jack is also an extreme explorer and has recently come back from an exciting expedition to the South Pole. Jack created Well-Founded in 2018, working with innovative and interesting startups to enhance the mental and physical health of some of the most successful entrepreneurs, founders, and athletes. And you join us today, where I've managed to pin him down for an hour at his Centre for Health and Human Performance. Jack, I really struggled to describe what you do succinctly in the introduction because you've packed in so much fascinating stuff and have many strings to your bow. I'm just wondering how you would describe yourself and what you do if you're sitting next to somebody at a dinner party. First of all, thank you very, very much for having me. I am interested in a lot of things, but principally medicine has been the big thread in my life. But not only just medicine, how we can glue technology and sort of the essence of human performance science into making medicine a better thing and easier to practice. So I'm a technologist. I've been a geek since the age of 13, doing things professionally since about 15 years old. I actually paid my way through medical school working for the late, great Douglas Adams, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, doing the Hitchhiker's Guide online. So I was sort of moonlighting whilst, whilst at medical school. Uh, so I got deep into tech at that first point. Then, you know, qualified as a medic in 1998 and uh, have had a dual career in medicine and technology since. That's basically me in a nutshell, geek and doctor. That's you in a nutshell. How did you become a geek in the first place? Because looking at you, I mean, if we go back 25 years, that was around the birth of Google, wasn't it? So what were you geeking with when you were 13 years of age? And where did that passion come from at that early time? Computers were just being brought into school. So I was very lucky that BBC Micros and uh, Acorn Computers were uh, in uh, our school. And I got very interested in this sort of concept of human-computer interface. So how do kind of computers think, broadly speaking? A lot of sci-fi background there. And how do humans think and how do they interact? So uh, I was very interested in graphical user interfaces and essentially how do you put data and stuff into a computer and how does those things that a computer computes get usable by us. And that was my way in. It was, you know, how do you get humans and computers to talk to each other? That was it. And But my, my mum was really quite shocked by the thought that I might become a designer or an artist or something after all those years of sacrifice. And so she made sure that I went off and did something proper like medical school. So that's uh, obviously a very, very great honour to have been able to study. That's when my professional career began was uh, was on computers. Gosh, and computers have changed so much in the past 25 years. And now we're all beginning to try and embrace AI. I mean, what have those mm. changes been like for you? I'd imagine the most exciting time, given what you're interested in. Oh, this is an amazing time. You, you know, you can't predict these things. One minute you're looking at a big screen, the next minute that big screen becomes flat. Then everything that's going on in a big whirring box sits on your lap, and then suddenly it becomes something in the palm of your hand. And then 
with some weird coincidence, someone invents something where you can touch a screen and then all of that becomes touchable and movable and things. And so, you know, we've had these huge leaps in technology, which have been sort of predictable to an extent, and then suddenly they emerge. And most recently this year, obviously, we have seen tons of work that's been going on for decades emerge as a really useful and usable domain called large language models. And they are really fantastic. I, I wouldn't say I'm out of a job yet, but it's going to democratize hugely the amount of information that people can access and interpret without people like me around. So watch this space. It's very exciting. <laughs> so what exactly does a large language model do and how is it going to help our health? Yeah, well, this is it. First of all, we're living longer, not necessarily better and healthier. And there aren't as many of me around proportionally as there should be. Uh, so, you know, healthcare professionals are hard to access. Physical and mental health issues and an aging population mean that we need more folk like me and we haven't got the time. So how do you access some of the basic information that you need, maybe symptom wise or, or otherwise, but also just in terms of general health, like tell me what a good nutrition plan or an exercise program is for me. Do you want to spend 50 pounds or a six month wait getting your doctor to refer you to a physiotherapist? Or do you just want to ask something that looks at all the previous things that have ever been said, right or wrong, and say what the next thing should be, which is probably right for you? We won't get it right all the time, but there's a difference between a health system that is available and has full capacity all the time and one which isn't. We are in a situation where we haven't got enough capacity. And so what large language models are the beginnings of is the ability to scale people like me and to make medical knowledge way, way more accessible any time of day or night. That's really important for people. It's still not quite there yet in terms of replacing people like me, as I said, but it's a huge leap forward. In a way, we've started that process ourselves, haven't we, with things like smartwatches and people counting how many steps they do and looking at their sleep patterns and their heart rates. So people are beginning to get used to keeping an eye on the basics of healthcare themselves, I suppose. Transformative. You could not imagine having a biosensor on your finger that for a week without recharging can measure every gap between every heartbeat, can calculate how fast you're breathing, your body temperature, your oxygen saturations at night. I mean, this is completely unheard of 10 years ago, let's face it. And now people have aura rings, whoops, they have, uh, you know, pretty well every watch that you can buy today has some sort of glowing green lasery thing at the back that measures tons of stuff. Is it good enough to make critical decisions about whether to put insulin in you or not? You know, those are things which will happen over time. And obviously those things are still now kind of quite expensive, regulated and very well tried and tested medical devices. But it's utterly remarkable what people can now do for themselves with their own health, even if it doesn't sort of bleed into, sorry for the pun, <laughs> more <laughs> medical matters just yet. But there are a huge number of biosensors, wearables and things that are usable, even in extreme environments, which is something that I'm oh, interested in, is the I use of it. You, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we can now run trials and keep monitoring ourselves outside of hospital, outside of medical environments to the same standard as we could only dream of doing in a hospital or a laboratory. 
So uh, we yeah. will come to, on, obviously, to extreme environments. So fascinating. <laughs> I want to hear all about the South Pole as well. But what would you say is the most exciting bit of tech or most revolutionary bit that you've seen emerging? What excites you the most out of everything you're seeing in this space? Currently, I think, I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit. It's this kind of encapsulation, the ability to take the entire corpus, essentially, of what has ever been written and responded to, questions asked, answers given, and essentially be able to tap into those questions and answers in a way where you can use natural language and not be someone that speaks the language of medicine. This is the heart of this sort of AI, generative AI revolution that is that is happening now. I'm not a big... Okay. <laughs> there are two aspects here. First of all, I don't believe these things are conscious. There is absolutely no evidence of it. That is a very, very different thing. So we're not talking about AI actually being able to be your friend. And I'm also not worried that much about the kinds of tools that we've got right now uh, doing anything terribly malicious. Although all these things, you know, just like good medicine, I guess, you know, everything has side effects. And usually you don't know what those side effects are going to be until you use them for a while. So I'm, I'm very positive about it. But, you know, your question is really about which one of those things. And it's the confluence of all of these things that's important. So, we have the miniaturization of stuff. We have the fact that we can use them and wear them and don't have to recharge them every couple of minutes, that they're connected so there aren't wires everywhere, that they're actually enjoyable to use. You know, you can learn stuff. And that combined with the interpretation of these... T look, a few years ago, people would come to your average GP going, oh, I've got this brand new thing called an Apple Watch and look at all these graphs. And your doctor would go, uh, don't have time for this. Or <laughs> even worse, they would say... I can't look at this because if I say you're okay, and then there was one blip in the data amongst all these charts and graphs that you've generated, then I'm liable. So now it's a time for humans to, <laughs> humans, non-patients, people who aren't necessarily sick, to be able to look at all of these data and have the generative AIs, these large language models, example being ChatGPT, but there are others, to be able to look through that and say, hey, I'm not a doctor, you know, disclaimer, <laughs> but there are some trends in this direction and they sometimes are associated with X, Y, and Z. Like you can, you can see that your ferritin is, is going down and uh, so is your iron and this thing called mean cell volume is going up. You know, people don't really know what they are, but you can ask, you say, what is mean cell volume? Well, you know, it goes up sometimes when you haven't got enough of this. And why not speak to a nutritionist, for instance? Now, those are the sorts of things that you'd normally have to ask a professional to go through. Now you can do it yourself. It's not necessarily for medical things. It's to improve sleep, improve well-being, improve performance, and do all of those kinds of things that actually maybe prevent you from needing to go and see a doctor about a great many things. So it's the combination, I think, of the devices, the computation, the connectivity, the battery life, the LLMs, that's what's happening as a confluence. And as my grandfather, who lived to 100 and went over the top of the Battle of the Somme and was the last surviving member of his regiment when he passed away at 100, said, I was born in 1894 and I've seen remarkable change and never say never. And I always think of him when we're at these really innovative times at the minute. Of course, if somebody had said to him in his earlier days, you know, one day a lump of metal will fly with 300 people on board, it would have seemed ridiculous. 
And even though he was from that Victorian generation, he said, you'll be amazed what you see in your lifetime. And I guess we've been amazed what we've seen already in our lifetimes. I still, I mentioned this several times before to various people, but I remember in my 30s being taught to send an email. So when you think now, I'm just making out I'm very old now, but things are moving very quickly. And who knows what you'll be seeing as a doctor in the next 10 years or so. I think it's very exciting. In the right hands, it's very exciting. But I am fascinated. You slipped in there, Douglas Adams, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. How did he inspire you? Well, I'm kind of inspired by him from a very, very young age, because I think folk like me who are, as I say, geeks uh, of my era, we all read it. That famous trilogy in four parts was, uh, it was almost like a religious text. So he influenced me before I had the privilege of working with him. Really, there's a, there's a couple of things that I think really stand out in my mind is the ability to translate complicated things because it was deep philosophy. There was, there was an awful lot of stuff that he was talking about to do with artificial intelligence, what it might be to travel through space. <laughs> Over 40 years ago, he talked about a handheld device with a touch screen that contained all the knowledge and wisdom in the universe. And I mean, we, we, this, this, this was, <laughs> you know, like, back exactly. <laughs> was he was a true prophet. So he, I guess, did it with a sense of humor. And I think storytelling is really amazingly important. And a lot of people are great at bamboozling folk with all sorts of things. And, I, you know, all of those pathways and biological magic of how cells work and how beings work. Obviously, they should be in my head if I'm a physician. Certainly as a geeky physician, I should know about all those things. But how do you communicate that to people is really how he inspired me. He did it with humor. He did it with nuance. He was very depressed, I think, or disillusioned towards the end of his life with the black and whiteness that we were kind of seeing in discourse and conversation, the inability to laugh at ourselves, to question ourselves, to put ourselves in the position of the other side, however abhorrent that might sort of intuitively or ethically feel. But it's that imagining oneself as novelists are brilliant at and philosophers are good at, to put yourself in the shoes of others, to even speak in their voice, which helps us, I think, find solutions to the greatest problems and see the world from all points of view. So his humor, his intellect, his ability to see the future, his ability to communicate in a great way was a huge inspiration to me. I found a little nugget about him when I was reading a bit about him last night. I didn't realize he was a really hardcore Apple aficionado. But he was also, apparently, I read, the first person in Europe to buy one. And the second person was Stephen Fry. (laughs) <laughs> Which I thought was a quite an his. interesting little nugget. Yeah, who, who indeed is a friend of his, yeah. Oh, so really? Was a friend, Stephen, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I love Stephen Fry. It was amazing to think about that. Gosh, how amazing that you worked with him and had the privilege to work alongside him. I think I might need to reread The Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy now that we're so much further down the road. You love adventure. And I know this year you come back from the South Pole. Tell us a bit about the the South Pole, what you were doing there and your passion, obviously, for extreme medicine and how it all fits in. Yeah. So my background has been emergency medicine and high altitude and sort of extreme environments medicine. And then what we learn in those difficult environments, those austere environments, how can we help people who are in ICU or recovering from chemo radiotherapists or those sort of things. Going to extreme environments is not just about my love of nature and wild places, but also because that's where we like to study and collect data on people and hopefully then change the way we practice medicine. And I was given a great opportunity by friends of mine, a wonderful Dr. Natalie Taylor, who's a major in the UK Armed Forces, 
and Chris Imrose. He's Professor Cold Injuries, Professor Frostbite. He's, that's, <laughs> a, that's, Frostbite. that's what he's what kind, of known, kind of known as. Vast, There's a brilliant. book in there, isn't there? <laughs> Professor, Professor Frostbite. Frostbite. Or a series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, or a Mr. Man book. Uh, he, he, won't like me, he won't like me saying that. And they were presenting a paper, uh, actually at one of the first little conferences that we were allowed to attend after COVID. And it was a wonderful poster about this sort of third trip to the South Pole, where the first one was all men. And then the second one was all women and they did remarkably well even though they had very similar conditions and so on and lost an awful lot less weight and muscle mass than did men they? did yeah but loads of papers were published and i saw this and i said so what's this one about and they said yeah well, so inspire 22 because that's when we set off is men and women head to head crossing the south pole from coast to pole about 50, 60 days, tough stuff. 50 or 60 days? Yeah, uh, 50 with a, wow. with, a, with a tailwind. That's, um, that's yeah. hardcore. <laughs> and, you know, you're dragging a sled at up to 3,000 metres altitude down to minus 50 degrees. I mean, it, it's extreme stuff. And it's also hyper-endurance. I can talk about what hyper-endurance really means, but could we study how men and women together could not compete, but how their physiology changes, how their adaptation changes. And lo and behold, we did find, a lot of stuff is being formally published on this, but this is a little bit of a pre-publication insight, is that yes, men do lose an awful lot more weight and muscle mass, relatively speaking, a lot earlier. And then in the second phase, when the altitude gets very high, because remember you're on 3000 meters above sea level of ice, it's not just cold. It's also very high. Men again lose more muscle mass and weight than women do. And so in hyper-endurance settings, meaning it's not only like doing a couple of marathons a day, which calorifically it is like 8,000 calories a day. And you could only, by the way, consume about 5,000. So it's not just about how much your effort you're putting in. It's also the fact that you're in calorie deficit. And so why has nature kind of favored female physiology for this kind of hyper endurance stuff? And people go, well, everybody knows that women are better at endurance. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to schlep a whole bunch of people to the South Pole to get them to do that. But no one's actually done the research properly head to head to see what's going on. But why, why is it? Why do women not lose as much? We're now going through the data to try and find which of the genes are being switched on more and what are the hormonal factors and what are the actual causative things. But it turns out, we think, that female physiology lends itself to survival in far higher calorie deficit situations than male physiology does. It kind of like nature's cast its net wide. It's kind of said, okay, if we're going to give some genes to one half of this species, let's give some that will help fight, lift heavy weights and do the kind of burst and sprinty type stuff. And then let's give the very long-term survival genes to the other side, whereby if there's a mass migration or a famine and they're also carrying 
children, feeding them, maybe pregnant. Who would you give the long-term survival genes to? It makes so much sense, Um, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Think about it. If you go back to cavemen times and the division of labor, the hunters and gatherers and the women nurturing the the young, I find that kind of thing fascinating. It makes sense. And so that's what we're discovering is that the, the kind of the genes responsible for some of these things like brown fat metabolism and, you know, inherently female physiology lends itself to uh, storing more fat reserves. But it's not just about fat, it's actually how you use it, how it's preserved, how muscle is preserved. And the Greeks and the Olympics are all to blame for this, by the way, the fact that we don't know this stuff, because people get bored after watching sport for more than four hours, which is the length of a marathon, which is, of course, the longest kind of event that was in the Olympic races. No one actually realized, oh, let's do a race that is 50 days long where you're given limited food. (laughs) (laughs) And also, let's not make it Greece, but let's make it somewhere very cold and remote. That's not a spectator sport. So it turns out that all the things that we um, have biases about, you know, men are faster, men are stronger. Yeah, for spectator sports, but in the long run, different story. And what is it like, Jack? I mean, I've been on some very tame expeditions next to next to yours. I went to the, the edge of the Arctic Circle once and I think we tipped up with all these protein bars and we were never actually more than three hours away from our warm fire and hut. So I haven't exactly traced Shackleton's footsteps in my expeditions, but can you give us a sense of what that's like when you're in the middle of nowhere, that you're seeing parts of the world that very, very few people have had the privilege to see. What's it like? I just can't imagine the views and and how you cope with the challenge that you've given yourself. I was privileged to lead the, the last degree part of the Inspire expedition. So we met the team at the South Pole, we, we, we aimed to meet the team at the South Pole. So they started off 40 days earlier than us. But our group, all 10 of us, got dropped at 89 degrees south at minus 30 degrees. And there's nothing but this epic, endless white disc. From horizon to horizon, there is literally nothing. There is this dark, dark blue sky with this godlike orb of light that just circles you hovering just above the horizon because it's 24-hour daylight. The only thing that changes is the angle of your shadow. And obviously, it can drop if there's a bit of cloud, it suddenly drops 20 degrees. And it's much more difficult than I thought. And I've been to some quite tough environments in the mountains, but just psychologically going, there ain't no pub. In sight. I mean, and, 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 you know, doing the equivalent of two marathons worth of effort every day, stopping for those precious few minutes to just about be able to do some of the admin, like change your gloves, change your goggles, try and stuff a bit of calories in your mouth and the other kind of things that you've got to do, like to go to the toilet if you have to and so on. And just fitting that into this perpetual effort and nothing changing day after day after day. I found that. Well, first of all, I would say that that helps you realize that a nice warm tent, some warm food, some good company and so forth is actually a huge blessing. Every day getting a bit of that makes reminds you of the kind of stuff we completely forget about, like sitting here. There are walls. There's some warmth. <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah. cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. So it was great. And then... I would say getting to the pole, which having read Shackleton's expedition when I was 13, actually standing at that point and seeing your 
shadow cast wide, wide, wide across the ice and actually seeing your shadow move across the ripples and realizing that it's not the sun that's moving, but having that realization that actually you're the extension of the axis of earth and that you're spinning and your shadow is actually moving because you are spinning as an extension of earth's axis was quite a moving moment i have to say gosh i can imagine and then this relates the extreme medicine then helps with people perhaps gone through chemotherapy which is often quite aggressive or in icu how does putting people in those extreme conditions then help you with emergency medicine this end so what we were testing is we all went both the coast of poland and our last degree group we all did like physiology and blood testing and various other things before and after the expedition but we were all equipped with biosensors so the kind of stuff that you can buy from the shops pretty well you know zoe i don't know if you've heard of the uh, well the sensor that they use does continuous glucose monitoring and it does it really, really well for many days in a row. It's quite a remarkable thing. The Aura Ring, for instance, we had a more research-grade wearable called the Empatica Watch. Other folk were wearing some of their own devices like Apple Watches and things. So part of the study was to see what is the viability of these devices to collect data in difficult environments, first of all, and are they predictive of people getting sick earlier or not doing very well? Remember before we talked about you know the first male expedition going, not all of them did so well, and then the women did really well. So could we use some of these biosensor data, these predictors, to see who was going to do better and who was going to do worse? And it was remarkably... Uh, You think these things are not designed for these environments, but they really, really worked. We were able to see where people were going to do well or not going to do well. That was one of the purposes of the expedition. Can tech work even when you have got big gloves on? Which could, by the way, be a mirror of a person who's got peripheral neuropathy, a person that can't feel their fingers very well. One of the key points I'd like to make sure that tech manufacturers understand is that yes, you've got to build for the masses. That's commercial sense. But remember, if you're then trying to say, use this for serious medicine or for research, remember that the sickest people sometimes don't have the best fingers, that they do shake like we were doing when we were shivering, that they don't remember very well perhaps to charge things. And we were always in the situation where you turn on your phone and 15 seconds later it's dead because it's minus 30. (laughs) Getting manufacturers to understand that if they really want this stuff to not just work for the healthy and people on their pelotons and running ultramarathons, if they want it to work for people who are disadvantaged, disabled, sick, tired, fatigued, etc., just coming out of ICU, etc., they've got to do more work to get those things to work well for everybody. But that was one of the main parts of the expedition was the usefulness of such devices in extreme environments and learning then the applicability of whether or not, let's say, if you're in the military, what you need to do to fuel properly, if you're coming out of intensive care, difference between a man and a woman, perhaps, in terms of what you fuel people with, forgetting the kind of average calorie count stuff that we're all obsessed with, and many other things that help us in our health, in our performance, a recovery from disease and preparation for tough environments. You worked for around 15 years, I think, with Professor Greg White, who is a former Olympian and sports scientist on some of those extraordinarily tough celebrity challenges that we're all used to seeing in comic relief or sport relief and things like that. Which ones really stand out? I mentioned a few in the introduction of my favourites. I love the Battle of the Backsides. 
That was absolutely fantastic. So that's when Robbie Savage and Alan Shearer uh, had a race where they had to sit on every seat in Wembley Stadium. And that is a lot of squats, 90,000 to be precise. And so sticking again, a little biosensor on them, which we could monitor remotely that measured their heart rate, heart rate variability, breathing, movement, even ECG. We could actually tell in advance that Alan was going to win. Really? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, because he was- Just using, from the quality yeah, of his squat. His butt shifting efficiency was better <laughs> uh, than Robbie's. And that was an awful lot of fun. It was magic because it raised awareness about important areas that the charity was raising money for. But more importantly, it was helping us again learn about how technology can help us detect who's going to do better and who's going to do worse. That's that was a super good It took a few fun. days, didn't it? Oh, it took yeah. a few days <laughs> to... I mean, when I first saw that challenge come up, I thought, oh, that can't be too bad. Maybe I could do that. And then I think it took them five days to yeah. do it. So then you realise that's an awful lot of squats. That's a lot of squats. That's I mean, a, lot, that's well, a they, lifetime of squats. Well, they great fun as well. Too. It was great fun. I bet there was yeah. great banter between them. It was super. And, and then the, the other thing, which actually wasn't a sport relief challenge, but it was something that Greg, Professor Greg, got me into is a, a thing we did for, for TV, looking at whether rest, ice, compression and elevation actually helped you recover from sports injuries and yeah that was uh, interesting being thrown in a heavyweight cage fight with a mixed martial artist called Nick the headhunter Chapman that was fun and, uh, and, and literally being at a major event as a guest competitor and receiving soft tissue injury <laughs> on both sides of my body and then demonstrating how maybe rest ice and compression and elevation might help but I think it's less about science because by the way that is not great science <laughs> treating one half of your body and not the other half but again it's about like the communicating these important messages to people when you know when someone two years later in a taxi goes oi aren't you you're that you're that doc, aren't you? You're you're rice. I remember that rest, ice, compression, elevation. You think to yourself, okay, we're very good at science sometimes, but we are not very good at communicating. And so it's important for most of us to understand stuff. We've got to do things in a way that is interesting, humorous, accessible, and medicine's got a lot to learn about how to communicate. So that was the great part about these things. I think is that. It was a lot of fun. It raised money and it also helped communicate important things. The thing I really liked and actually I rewatched last night, I've always liked Davina McCall and I liked the challenge that she did when she was really terrified about the swim across Windermere in very low temperatures. And I watched the swim. She swam with Greg. There were points where you really felt she wasn't going to make it and she didn't think she was going to make it. The state she was carried out of the lake in and then half an hour later to see her body warmed again and I get on a bike and I think she cycled 60 miles or kilometers afterwards was extraordinary. I bet she's lovely to work with, is she? She is a remarkable person who keeps on being remarkable. And I think an example, certainly an inspiration to me and I think to many other people as well, that it doesn't matter what your original genetics were, because she's no athlete, right? No, and she talks about not being an athlete at all. In fact, having quite a tough time in her life at one point, which she talks very openly about. Absolutely. The fact that a lot of these kinds of challenges are done by men, not women. The fact that she does not believe quite rightly that menopause should be a barrier to continuing to keep very fit and very well in latter stages of life. 
she's by no means old, but I mean, the, the extension is that we should all be able to maintain really good muscle mass and uh, musculoskeletal health, which is utterly essential if we're going to be benefiting from all this anti-aging and longevity I medicine know, that's I, happening. I um, need to talk to you about longevity because yeah. I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with longevity, particularly having a grandfather who lived to 100. So well, you've, um, got, you've got the genes probably. Well, but, apparently yeah. <laughs> I did have a body scan. I was lucky to have a bone scan because uh, I was worried my mum's bones weren't great and I I thought maybe I should just have a look and see if I'm sure. falling apart. And an Italian doctor told me very chirpily that I have bones of a 35-year-old. So <laughs> since I'm several decades out on that, I was quite happy with that. Longevity, I know you've, you do TED Talks on lots of different subjects, but longevity is something that you talk about a lot. And you said earlier, we're all living longer. But my aim in life, in my small little way, is I think we should be living longer and living better. I hate the word, for example, retirement. It always feels to me like you're being retired tired and you're going out to grass. I can't ever see giving up what I do for a living because I enjoy it and, and it's part a big part of who I am. But there are lots of little things, aren't there, Jack, that we can all be doing as basic as hydration and sleep to look after this body that we've all been lucky enough to be given. Longevity and longevity medicine. I don't think there is such thing as longevity medicine yet. It's research. And I also don't really like the word longevity because it's really all about what we call health span or compression of morbidity is the kind of technical term. What does that mean? It means that it's the gap between health span and lifespan. So can we foreshorten that last few, ideally few days or weeks rather than years and decades where we're still, excuse my language, kicking butt? You know, like that is the holy grail is for us to still be thriving into our eighth and ninth decade of life. And by the time we are there, I'm sure we will have figured out safe and interesting ways of maintaining our health span longer and maybe even increasing our lifespan in a healthy, good state too. Being fit and well into your eighth and ninth decade is now for us as a society no longer some kind of weird luck or luxury it is necessity we used to have kids when we were 25 30 that means we were grandparents when we were 50 to 60 we were great grandparents when we were 75 to 90 that's changed we're now having kids at 45 some of us are having our first kids at 45 we will be 90 if that's mirrored by our children if we are to be not a burden, but be additive and awesome for our children and our grandchildren, we need to be kicking butt into our eighth and ninth decade. This is the work that we have been doing with Greg. And basically my whole career has been in this area is, you know, if we can learn about how we adapt when we're young to extreme environments, we can extend that to being physically more performant and indeed mentally healthier as well into those latter decades. It's utterly essential. This isn't just fun. This isn't dreams of wealthy people. We have to be working on this stuff. There are lots of things that everybody can do. Like you said, physical activity is probably, no, it's not probably. It is definitely the most accessible, most enjoyable, and most beneficial thing that we can still do, irrespective of whatever is being sold to you by longevity companies, doctors, folk that do lots of podcasts and make an awful lot of money from books and stuff. Exercise is it. And fortunately, there are some great people in longevity medicine, longevity science, who are really behind that message. 
we will crack biology's code eventually, just like we're cracked large language models and various other things. But that has got to be the number one. There, I mean, in order, right? That's number one. And then very much, you know, looking after your sleep, making sure that in, your nutrition is sensible. I'm a great believer in fixing micronutritional things and supplementing where necessary, but we do not have a good base and eating real, eating right is utterly essential too. It won't guarantee that you won't be hit by an asteroid or one of those 35 trillion beautiful cells that you're looking after won't go rogue and, and cause a tumor. That, that's going to be the biggest cause of death as we get older and older, I think. Um, but yeah, uh, keep fit, keep moving, keep active and don't retire. The Japanese have this thing called Ikigai, which is this concept of don't retire, don't stop. And it actually reminds our physiology, this kind of stress of needing to complete something. And then the reward for completing it is, it operates around the thing called the dopamine reward pathway. Uh, it does other things, you know, but predominantly it's dopamine. There's a bit of serotonin, there's a bit of adrenaline, there's a bit of this, there's a bit of that. But predominantly that reminds our physiology that we still are useful to the tribe and should still be around. <laughs> so don't retire. No, exactly. Now, the, the one we don't want too much of is cortisol. And stress always fascinates me as somebody who tries to look after their nutrition and health and all that kind of thing, because it's very difficult for people to say, oh, don't get stressed. But Cortisol was designed, wasn't it? Or adrenaline was for when the saber-toothed tiger came to attack, your body would respond in fight or flight mode. But I think a lot of us are living with underlying stress. And I think my body produces far too much cortisol and it's damaging, isn't it? In terms of inflammation and potentially leading to chronic disease. How can we manage our stress? And what is stress really from your perspective? Stress is really important and overcoming those stresses like we just talked about with this sort of ikigai kind of concept is essential i mean it's absolutely look if we didn't have stress we would i think be a far less productive and awesome species but it is the stress without the reward of overcoming it that is the fundamental problem okay it is the persistent underlying stress that always wakes you up it's the stress that causes you to never be able to put a smile on your face. It's the stress that causes breakdowns in relationships, that inhibits your creativity. Those are the stresses which are, are the ones which we need to kind of do as much as we can about. But we can't. Our world is full of stress. And for gurus and doctors and just to say, hey, just meditate and so forth, doesn't make the stress go away, but it can blunten that kind of big spike in adrenaline that is caused and the cortisol, which raises your blood sugar, which raises your insulin, that causes the actual damage to your body as an inflammatory factor that causes the deposition of fat in the wrong places in your body and all sorts of bad things. And stops you from sleeping, which is where your body repairs and where your cells are supposed to recover and so forth. It's a little bit ambitious and it sounds very arrogant for people who haven't got, let's say, financial stress, who they're dealing with a kid with cancer, they've lost their job, they don't know if they're going to be able to keep their house. I have very much this same kind of sentiment towards the folk that are saying, yeah, don't die, 
just do these protocols and you have a good chance of living to 120. They're talking to people who may not live 150 days, let alone 150 years. And we have to have some humility. This is something I, I feel really strongly about is that, yes, have your dreams, have your goals, but be sensitive to the people that are not going to make it because you sound like an ass as a scientist or a professional or a guru or a thought leader when you're not sensitive to these things. And right now we're also in the middle of two major wars. There are folk that have lost their homes and stuff like this. So tell me that you can just do more walking and sleep better when there are bombs flying over you or you know, risk of being kidnapped or shot at a, a party. But there are things that we can do and learning to build relationships rather than just look at your blood results is probably one of the biggest things. I say meditation won't get rid of stress, but it has been shown clinically to reduce cortisol, glucose, insulin, inflammation, bad things. Those are all fantastically good. You know, companies like Headspace, I was very privileged to be the first advisor to Headspace. Yeah, uh, back a long time ago now. But, you know, they've shown now clinically that this is a real thing. You should be prescribing this as a doctor. And many other companies like that are working on ways of enhancing therapy so it doesn't take as much time from, from, from professionals as well, including the whole area of psychedelic research, which is going to become very, very mainstream over the is next it? decade. Is so? Yeah. Not retiring is important, but really good relationships is as essential as meditative practices and also just structuring your life so that you can, if possible, not overwhelm yourself with the kinds of desires and goals that we have that very often cause anxiety and stress themselves. One of them is very simple, and that's social media. It's enormously powerful in one way to connect with people. And then on the other side, it can cause incredible stress and it doesn't go away. So lots of things that... Uh, lots of things you can do. Yeah. I've realized that actually when you talk about things like, you know, what's happening in Israel and Palestine at the moment, then my stress is actually very minor next to that. It was more the sort of day-to-day stresses of life. But I think it's been heartbreaking watching on both sides. Yeah. Some of the, particularly the children who have been on social media and have arrived at hospitals looking for their parents or their homes being bombed. And we can't even imagine, I don't think, what people like that are going through right now. These are the sorts of stresses that are kind of unimaginable and you don't ever want to go through. But it is important, I think, to know that it's not just about taking vitamins, right? It's about structuring your life, having good network of people around you. I was invited to a longevity conference a few months ago, and I remember there was all the you know, a few of the great and the good on stage and they were asked the final question for a hundred points. You know. So finally, what is your secret and so forth? And, you know, people were mentioning peptides and all sorts of various other kind of like fancy things, all of which are quite exciting and may become practice in due course. But I said, well, I'm 50 next year and I've been living on a strict diet of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And, it's, <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually become the name of my book, which I'm writing at the moment called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll and Other Secrets to Longevity. But in all seriousness, it doesn't have to be sexual intimacy, but connection with people has been shown in the Stanford longevity research, in the Blue Zones, in the Okinawa studies, all these things looking at sort of hyper-aging societies and healthy ones, that connection with people is a vital ingredient. Drugs is the whole point you're talking about work, keeping working, having those goals and achieving them, that dopaminergic pathway, highly important. And rock and roll, it's that music, dance, non-dual practices, meditation, 
the things that release serotonin into your system. So it's the human connections, it's the goals and the never retiring. And it's that, you know, losing yourself, extracting yourself as the center of the world. This is what meditation and various other practices and indeed psychedelic therapeutics also kind of help achieve, which is this loss of self, the serotonergic type pathway is very, very important for longevity. None of these hyperaging societies are taking strange infusions of things, but they've got plenty <laughs> of that sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, if you like. <laughs> I love the yeah. title of your book. I'm all for that. I think my little bit of meditation every day, because I'm not very good at meditating, I end up writing lists. And I have been trying because it is a practice. So I've been trying to add just 10 minutes because there's amazing apps out there and you find one you like. And I've been starting to do that because it's been quite fun. But my meditation, I think, is going for my takeaway coffee in the morning. It's the chatting to the young 25-year-old New Zealanders who run my local coffee shop, passing the time of day, sitting outside, whether it's raining or whether there's some nice natural sunlight, with my diary, with my notebook and my little throwaway ink pen. And for me, that sets my day. And I think that's a form of meditation because I'm very happy when I do it. Well-founded, I wanted to ask you about well-founded. It's been in the news, you've been in the FT. Tell me about what well-founded is and what are the aims? The work that we've been doing for many, many years has been with people who are working in extreme environments. They're called startups. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of folk, and this is actually in the FT, one of the people that we were working with is a big VC, an amazingly forward-thinking VC who decided to launch this uh, program we designed. You know, they kind of mentioned that every founder should be treated like an elite athlete. My view is quite different. Yes, you need to be fit and do all that stuff. But being in a startup is more like climbing the north face of the Eiger than it is having some smooth running track every four years at the Olympics, right? So actually teaching people about all the things that we learn in extreme environments, people don't have time to go and be tested all the time. They want to have like little wearables and stuff. So everything comes together with the technology and all of our learnings around 2018, where we think, okay, we're going to help people like me, who are sort of serial tech entrepreneur people who have broken themselves. I mean, doing a startup, being a junior doctor in the NHS, trying to be a good partner to who then became my, my wife, you know, all of these things. That is properly overdoing it. I am very sure that the epigenetic changes which have caused the malfunctioning of the color of my beard, for instance, turning white, <laughs> are all to do with this stuff. So can we do what we do for elite athletes, VIPs, special ops, expedition leaders, can we do the same thing for startups was the, was the kind of hypothesis. Except funny thing was, we asked a whole bunch of people in 2018, would you be keen on a program funded or co-funded by your VCs, your, your, your investors, where we would do the same stuff as we do for all these other people working in extreme environments? And the answer was no. The answer was, if we admit that we're breaking <laughs> from physical and mental health issues, our investors would leave us and our team would run away. Now, after COVID, a whole bunch of stuff has happened. The mental health taboo has been lifted and you hardly would join a startup now if the founders weren't publicly saying that they had mental health problems, but were dealing with them. You know, it's a total change. And I think this transformation in attitude is extremely important. We need bold, ambitious, and fairly crazy to some degree founders, that kind of attitude, that entrepreneuritis, if you like, 
We need that in order to crack difficult problems. Otherwise, who else is going to, at high risk of their long-term career and their you know, health and time and whatnot, going to fix fusion power or find the special molecular glue that helps something attached to something to cure cancer? We need these brains, but we need to look after them better. So well-founded started as an idea that was rejected, that came back into- uh, <laughs> All good came, ideas yeah, rejected. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great, but we stuck with it. A uh, brilliant gentleman called Toby Koppel from Mosaic Ventures, a uh, great venture capital firm in London. They helped us test this and co-design it with the first 25 founders of their portfolio. And that was in the news with Alderton, this uh, major European VC that rolled it out to their portfolio. And so we've had 75 people now join the program in 12 countries and three continents. And it's great. We haven't had more fun practicing medicine and performance stuff than we've ever done in 25 years of practicing medicine. So it's really important. And we, you know, we relate to it as entrepreneurs ourselves. And it's lovely. We're bringing in the devices, the remote medicine, the remote research stuff, the ability to change people's health trajectories, performance trajectories, combining the medicine with the physiology, the mental health, the physical health, the behavioral stuff, and elite performance science, which is like the coaching that you'd give to somebody that's going to lead an expedition to the South Pole, for instance. So it's, it's enormous fun, and that's well-founded, yeah. Wow. And where are the most amazing places that you've been or the most extreme places that you've been and enjoyed other than obviously the South Pole, which we already chatted about? I've got an interesting answer to that because half of it is geographic and the other half is actually more to do with how close you can be to somebody or their family. It's the journey that you go through when someone's dealing with something very, very tough. Geographically, I've been enormously blessed. I don't quite know how I deserve this because it's normally the realm of people that have done so enormously successfully financially that they get to do things like the South Pole. But I think, you know, as a scientist, as a medic, you do get the privilege of getting to places like Patagonia, like Kilimanjaro. We buddied able-bodied people with disabled people and helped them get and see, you know, like we actually showed there how the mental resilience of people who've been living with disabilities actually helped the able-bodied people get up the mountain, which was wonderful. I've got a list as long as my arm of things that I feel almost embarrassed to have had the privilege of going on. But I would say that, yeah, I mean, ultimately the South Pole <laughs> is really the, 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 the icing on the cake, excuse the uh, Was the sex, drugs and rock and roll? It was, yeah, abso- absolutely right. But I think also, you know, I get a great reward from the journeys that you go through, the expeditions effectively that you go on with folk who get diagnosed, for instance, with something really difficult. And then we use all of that extreme environments, learning and performance science to help them get through chemo, get through radio, have the mental resilience and the kind of problem solving needed to explore trials and to get onto innovative treatments and so forth. And being on those journeys, I think, is deeply, deeply rewarding. It's not geographically exciting, but you really get to see human beings overcome their grandest challenges and you get to see medicine and science at its very edge. And do you think medicine and science is making great strides in terms of cancer? Uh, I know you have a cancer charity. Are you seeing ways that we can make progress and understand more about what it is that goes wrong in the body and finding ways to help people because so many people are suffering 
it's going to be the disease of our time because as we get older and crack the code of stopping cells from aging, we're going to end up with more cancer cells. It's just statistically impossible for this not to be the case. So it's very, very important that we, we work in this area. I am hugely optimistic and perhaps would not have been had you given me this interview five years ago. Really? There have been some major, major strides in almost every cancer type in the application of immunotherapies. We've gone through the very, very original immunotherapy stuff many years ago when I was still studying medical school and it went wrong, it didn't work, it caused more problems than it cured. Then we've been through a lot of the easy to win things like metastatic melanomas, a lot of that is revolutionized by immunotherapy. But what about the ones that aren't, the harder to get to? cancers, the ones that are protected by this almost like force field of, of protective defense mechanisms. That stuff we are really making big inroads into. The ability to personalize what it is that we're doing for an individual, because cancer is not just one thing. Every person's cancer is completely different. It's evolution on steroids. Okay, it's really trying to work out ways of surviving so everyone's cancer is going to be different. So the personalization is very important. I'm hugely pleased to see the ability for us to personalize vaccines, for instance, that contain the signals for the immune system to attack just that type of cancer, for instance. And then I think the other thing which is really intriguing is that we've made some incredible breakthroughs in chemotherapy as well, which, you know, has always been a feared thing. And, you know, if you ask me, would I want to go on chemotherapy for certain things? There's many cancers where I just go, well, actually, it's a pretty close call whether I want to have all these years of being in hospital and all the side effects versus the few months that I might actually live longer. But we have seen some absolutely extraordinary advances in how you target chemotherapy to just land on the place that you want it to land. I mean, the City of Hope Hospital this year released this incredible piece of news about stuff which has happened only in animals so far, but seems to be working across 70 different mammalian cancer types and is really a chemotherapy that is hitting the replication mechanism of DNA in cancer cells at its very core. Previously, not a chance of targeting that protein, that mechanism but it looks like it's been cracked. Long way to go till it's proven, but I am hugely optimistic. That's really nice to hear. We seem to have packed quite a few TED Talks into our podcast. And I did explain to you when we chatted on the phone that we've been asking everybody as their final question, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life? So Dr. Jack Kreindler, the biggest risk you've ever taken? I think the biggest risk I've ever taken was to give up full-time medicine as a safe, lovely career that could have taken me to being Professor Frostbite, for instance. <laughs> that is a huge risk to take. But for me, it has resulted in a world of innovation, technology, the combining of different worlds, travel across the world, the ability to innovate, to be the entrepreneur that I've ended up becoming and to meet an awful lot more people than I think I would have if I had continued with what would normally be an inevitable career. I haven't regretted a minute of it. My mum's still pretty angry. But, Is she? <laughs> <laughs> but I would do it all over again. Would you? Oh, gosh, I wonder if she'll be listening to this. Oh, sorry, mum. <laughs> do you miss the stresses and strains of, of emergency medicine or not really? Do you feel you did that? 
it's a different type of stress, emergency medicine, but, you know, we still do deal with a lot of difficult cases, just not with that kind of four-hour waiting time clock looming over your head necessarily at the, uh, you know, the Whittington Hospital at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but th- there is a great joy, an enormous joy, an enormous satisfaction of working with a team late at night sometimes, solving hard problems, helping people go through some of the most difficult choices sometimes they have to make in their life, seeing some impossible recoveries that otherwise would not have happened a hundred years ago if it wasn't for that antibiotic or that wonderful thing that you managed to inject at the right time. Those things I do miss. I do hope that all of my colleagues and friends who work still in emergency medicine continue, at least in the NHS, to want to work because it's becoming a harder environment with the resources, the disease burden, the aftermath of COVID, the fact that junior doctors are now striking because they're not getting as much pay as they should. It's a tough life. It is. I'm looking forward to Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll coming out. When When is that coming out? Hopefully the beginning of next year if I have enough headspace. But yeah. Oh, I know there's a, there's a lot going on. You're surrounded by whiteboards all over the walls of various diagrams in lots of different colours. So I know there's a lot going on in your world. But thank you for giving up an hour to chat about lots of different topics. And I'm sorry, Mum, but I think you did your time as an emergency doctor and it sounds like you're making some exciting strides in the world of health tech and extreme medicine. So brilliant. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to physician and explorer, Dr. Jack Kreindler. Jack has done lots of TED Talks on some of the topics we've discussed today. And if you want to find out more about his project with startups, then go to wellfounded.health for more. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week, so join me then. 